0: Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the Night's Watch. For this night and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones. I'm Vinnie Ferris, senior writer Joanna Robinson.
2: And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson.
0: Uh, if you are just joining us, we are counting down the top 15 episodes, the most essential episodes of Game of Thrones leading up to the final season, uh season eight. We are, I think we're at number nine or 10. I've lost count a little bit on our countdown, but this week we were talking about "Hard Home," written by Weiss and Benioff and directed by Miguel Sapochnik. We're counting down top, like we're counting down in chronological order 14 episodes and we're going to get to number 15. It is out of order, but it is what we have decided is the most essential. We're saving the best for last. So number 15 is going to be out of order. Could be from any season. You don't know. You don't know what it's from. Um, but, uh, as of right now, we are in season five. This is the only season five episode we're doing, hmm. uh, which might be a controversial decision. But if you're rewatching the whole thing, you might have noticed that season five is a tough sit is as they, as they like to say, uh, yeah, so here we are. We've zoomed to the end to like this is the thing about season five. Season five, Tough Sit, Episode nine, Hard Home, I think one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones ever. So that's, you know, that's the 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 good and the bad of season five. But uh here is my usually I do a 15-word recap. I'm just gonna do three and it goes like this. Holy shit, zombies. Um so that's my recap of Hard Home. What's true of Hard Home, actually, is that there is, uh, a lot more to the episode than just, uh, the last battle, which I think is only like 20 minutes, maybe, of the episode. A lot of other things happen, but I just thought for emphasis' sake, I would, I would focus on that. Richard? Before we get to our main discussion of the episode, we're going to hand out a few awards for Hardhome. Do you have an obvious MVP of Hardhome?
2: We have the same obvious MVP, Joanna. It's clearly Carsey.
0: Yes. The lovely Birgit Kjort Soren- Sorensen, mm-hmm. whose name I'm sure I butchered, um, of Borgen fame. Fantastic character. Um, gets minutes uh, to like win us over to her side. And we're there, and then we care a lot when she dies just minutes later, you know? So, incredible, incredible bit of writing. What about a sneaky MVP of the episode?
2: Okay, so I, this is a weird choice, maybe, but I have a reason for it. Um, my choice for sneaky MVP is Ollie, because this is the scene, (laughs) because this is the scene where it starts to set in motion that he's gonna get killed, John. Mm Mm-hmm. In this episode? Well, I mean,
0: yeah, they, yeah, I mean, I think they kind of lay, the track for it um a little bit throughout the season well but, but it's is- when
2: ollie decided i think you can see ollie deciding that he wants to yeah head, you know
0: yeah yep
2: and that's a big so ollie true. helped have a big plot thing happen
0: it's true i have a lot of feelings about ollie and i'm not a not a big fan but um he is important and that's true uh my sneaky mvp has got to be richard Brake, who plays the night king he's not the only actor who played the night king but this is my favorite version of the night king um i don't know he's just sassy but severe and um i'm like i'm a i'm a big fan of this particular iteration of the night king i think i think after that i think this is the last time he plays him and then they cast a different actor and i miss richard brick because i just think that he did a good job with it all right i've got a tie for my favorite quote and i couldn't Decide. This is the part of the episode where uh, I alienate viewers by trying to do impressions of characters on Game of Thrones and, and read out my favorite uh, line from the episode. Um, I'm, first, I'm going to do a Carsey quote, which just goes, I fucking hate things. Um, Richard, what's your line?
2: Mine also involves a profanity, so I apologize to our more delicately... Uh, sensible listeners Um, it's actually a, it's a, I'm cheating it's it's a, it's a it's a dialogue exchange so it's my ancestors would spit on me if I broke bread with a crow so would mine but fuck them they're dead it's a car- <laughs> just a good Carsey line you know
0: Ugh, she's full of them um, all right and then I got and then I have an Aria line that I have to say which is this oysters clams and cockles um, well
2: you say that anyway when you're at your second job I-
0: Generally, every day when I'm down at the fish market, uh, chasing cats and selling fish. So, uh, there you go. We've got a best dressed award to give out for this episode. I gotta give it to the Night King. Uh, once again, he's got this amazing sort of kilted armor happening. He's got that statement brooch, uh, at his throat. He's just a, a well dressed zombie king. Uh, what what do you got for me? Uh,
2: I don't forget his name, but the guy with the skull helmet who is pretty quickly dispatched oh, yeah. by by Tormund.
0: R- rattle shirt.
2: Word yeah, a rattle bones. shirt. That's so cool. Because he's like yeah. a slightly bigger character in the
0: books, right? Yeah, and and we met him back in like season three or whatever. So he's oh, been right. around. We've and, seen him and, before. And I think that's what's kind of fun is like um he was kind of this big intimidating deal and hard homes. St- you know, this section of hard home just kicks off with Tormund just killing him, mm-hmm. and that's it. That's cool. You know? mask, uh, yeah. It's, it's, he's a good looker. Um, alright. And then in terms of our ship for the episode, we want to talk about like, uh, either two people or inanimate objects or whatever that we are rooting for. I, in an alternate timeline, Carcy and Torment are like the power wildling couple. Um, I've never, bought into the tormund brand thing, but Carsi and Torman like I'm really feeling it uh, so sorry that it's so short-lived uh, and I love the way that Brigade Soren- Sorensen says Tormont um what what do you got Richard?
2: I'm gonna be a little transgressive and say I think there's yeah, that that final stare at the end of the episode mm. there's something a little sexy happening between John and the Knight and the Knights King.
0: Don't you think? I completely agree
2: You know, yeah. like, oh, the Night's yeah. King is wearing a fabulous outfit, as you mentioned. Um, he's like obsessed with Jon Snow, and Jon Snow is obsessed, obsessed with him. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe that's the end we don't see coming.
0: I love it that this is, this is actually a long, a long, b- slow burn love story. Winter is coming could mean
2: something we didn't think it meant. <laughs>
0: Oh, it can mean all sorts of things. All right. So, um, let us talk about this episode. I mean, like, I guess let's, let's run down the things that ha- don't happen on that, uh, snowy shoreline. Um, you know, but can got- we first
2: actually just for a little bit of context that would help me? Yeah. Cause I, I have not rewatched, um, the fifth episode, the season like you have. Um, what, what, what was wrong with this season? What was, what made it a hard sit? Just kind of briefly just for my own curiosity. I mean, I well, know I think- I've seen it, but I just don't remember.
0: I you know I think what we we talked a little bit when we were talking about the children we talked about the fact that Game of Thrones is sort of going off book more and more. So there's mm-hmm. some like there's some hard stuff that happens in in the books that's sort of hard to watch in this episode but then there's also like adapted choices that make it hard to watch and um it's basically uh this is a low point for so many characters before season six starts their climb back up. Does that make sense? And so there's just like a lot of punishment to watch, you know, the most famous of which being Sansa's like horrific time in her family home, her wedding to Ramsey, that, you know, that rape, all of that. Mm -hmm. There's Cersei being imprisoned. Um, we haven't gotten to her, her walk yet, but like that's, you know, that's a big thing that happens. Aria sort of stranded from the plot line in, in Bravos. You know, we, we talked about in the children, like when Arya leaves Westeros, that's sort of like a, a, a potentially great thing that could happen. And it's not, it's not that it universally is not, but it is hard. As, as Amelia Clark will certainly tell anyone, it's hard to be stranded from the main plot, you know, um, out there in the wild. Um, and then, you know, Daenerys, like, even in the books, the Daenerys sort of in marine, not sure what she's doing, has always been like a hard thing for, for people, you know, because, um, even, even George R. R. Martin has, I think he's called that the Marinese knot like a really hard sort of narrative corner that he backed himself into of like Daenerys sort of stuck in this place where nobody supports her. And it's just yeah. like, it's a, it's a, it's a downward turn for everyone. And even though it's a show that's always been like kind of grim, this is extremely a, a grim, grim spot in the show.
2: So yeah. Um sense. It does make sense. And, you know, someone on Twitter, uh, forgive me, I don't remember um, their username. They asked us like, why don't you guys talk about Daenerys much on this show? Like what, you know, she's a mm-hmm. huge character and so, so central to the story. And it's like, well, I mean, she, yes, she is in a grand kind of, sense towards the very end of the show but a lot of her is just kind of her stuck out there in the mirror and he's not you know and i think that maybe that's why we i mean we did consciously decide not to talk about her too much but like there's just a lot going on there that feels sort of not directly having any bearing on everything else and so it's just kind of easy if we're going to do like a short 20 minutes on an episode that's probably the first thing subconsciously that that goes you know is that fair? Yeah,
0: and I, I think it's fair. And it's what's also true, you know, and this is something that, um, I tend to sort of like hive mind, uh, with Brian Cogman, who has visited us on the show a couple times. Like, he says the characters that he responds to most on the show are the ones with like a lot of vulnerability. And Daenerys, like season one Daenerys is, is very compelling to me. And then there are compelling moments for her, but she's just on such a straight path of certainty for so long. And that, like, she knows what she wants and she's just, going hard at it and it's this is not a knock on amelia clark's performance honestly it's just like it's hard to access someone like that um in a way for me and you know like uh, like her love story you know she was she was with kaldrogo not that like a female character needs to be defined by that obviously but like she's in this relationship with kaldrogo that is interesting in season one and then after that it's like Dario, who is like a piece of a side piece, but not interesting. And then, like once she gets back to Westeros, then it's like a bit, a bit more interesting. And and you see some like uh chunks taken away from her in terms of I don't know chunks taken away from her is a weird thing for me to say, but I I, I think that that's chunks that's is right. the I name of one a- of
2: her dragons. Is that right?
0: <laughs> I think it's, yeah, yeah. It's
2: her- Vicaris, Dricaris, and chunks.
0: Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I think I think that's a fair critique, but I think what you're just going to see is that, you know, when two people are talking about a show in 20 minutes, uh, segments at a time, you know, the characters we respond to are the characters we're going to talk about a lot. I'm going to talk about Jamie Lannister a lot, disproportionately a lot, because that's the character that I respond to. And if you were listening to someone else do this and Daenerys is their favorite character, then they would talk about Daenerys a lot. So it's not inaccurate to say we haven't been talking about Daenerys a lot, but I think we have a few reasons why, uh, both, both, uh, maybe legitimate and maybe not. Um, yeah. So, so that's all the stuff that happens season. Also like, don't forget, uh, you know, shireen gets burned a lot of a lot of bad stuff happens it's really it's really wintry it's really grim on game of thrones in season five
2: yeah and i think that you know remembering watching it um you know because we're there's so much extra textual stuff happening this season it did give me this kind of sinking feeling that like okay so when working on their own and not sort of with martin's um admittedly grim uh subject matter himself or his, his text like the impulse to kind of have shock to like shocking television is to like have terrible things happen, you know? And, and I think that that's something that really started to bother me and why I don't watch Game um walking dead anymore. And this was the season of game of thrones that I think I was like, well, all they know how to do is punish these people, you know, like, and so people could be like, did you see that thing? I fucked up, huh? You know? And I think they pull themselves out of that. Like you said, like in, in six and seven. Um, but, uh, you know, it is something that does for, i think plagued the show for the rest of the run is this impulse toward that kind of extremity
0: i yeah, i don't know what what i'll say is this something that we do (laughs) it is our job to look at uh, tv shows on an episode by episode basis a season by season basis right that's Mm -hmm. something that we do for a living um and uh, there's use like, there's usefulness in that, but there's, but there's also, like, it's hard to assess a story in the middle of it, right? And so, totally. like, this is the middle of a story. You know, this is uh, season four and season five are the middle of the story. And so, like, season five w- was hard in some points for me to get through, but then looking at it with the longer lens of Game of Thrones, it makes more sense. Um, you know, it's not, it's not something that we wanted to like spend a lot of time in our countdown necessarily, but it's not like rewatching it. I'm not like, um, oh, I refuse to watch season five. There are seasons of television I refuse to revisit. You know what I mean? I'll just like skip past like, like, I don't really need to see season two of Friday Night Lights ever again. I'm good. That show lost its way in season two, and then I think it was just a hard course correct in season three. One of my favorite shows of all time. I never need to watch season two again. You don't um, like the
2: murder plotline?
0: <laughs> Landry murders someone? Ugh. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, um, I don't feel quite that way about season five, but I think that there are things that are just like, yeah, really, really rough. And, um, but then we get really extreme highs like Hard Home. Um, Something that we should talk about, uh, you know, this episode was directed by Miguel Sapochnik, who's become like one of the star directors of Game of Thrones, but he didn't start until, uh, season five. He did The Gift and he did Hard Home. Then he did Battle of the Bastards and Winds of Winter in season six, which are two of the best, uh, episodes or, or the most well regarded episodes of the series. Uh, and then he's directing to the big, big episodes in the final season. And he's like, he's a name that people know when they know Game of Thrones that they might not know like Jeremy Pedeswa or Alex Graves or some of the other directors. Um and and I'm I'm curious what you think, Richard, what do you think it is that Miguel Sabotchnik does in this episode and maybe specifically in that final sequence, but what does he do to distinguish himself as this like star director of Game of Thrones?
2: Well it's a massive battle sequence that is told on kind of strange terms and also on the terms of television and granted game of thrones is a very high budgeted television series, but it's still a television, you know, um, your production time is somewhat limited. Uh, your post production time is somewhat limited, your budget somewhat, you know, like there's all these things and he makes this grand thing out of it. And I think that, you know, by this, by the time this episode aired, um, in 2015, right. Um, uh yeah, May, on my on my birthday in 2015, my 32nd birthday. Um, mm. it's uh Happy Birthday to Me, I guess. Um, <laughs> there was no Ol- Olivar in this episode, so some birthday present, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, this was such a global phenomenon at this point, and there are certainly there certainly were many people who had read the books who were real purists about it. Um, but there was also just like more casual viewers, and here's big spectacle, you know. Um, and it's spectacle that feels like we haven't seen it before it delivers. Um, it's a sustained siege sequence. I mean, it's really, you know, it's really quite a feat of of crowd management and a camera's physics kind of keeping us, you know, we 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 know where we are at each given moment, you know, even though there's this whole swirl of chaos happening around it. And then I think the really interesting creative choice, um, which was maybe not just punchnik, but maybe it was more a committee choice, or maybe it was him, to end on this completely quiet note. And not, not a note, not thrashing music, not, you know, oh God, okay, just this note of like silence, you know, I think that that caps off what's been loud and brutal for the past, you know, half an episode almost, uh, in a really, in a way that you feel like, wow, I just watched something that was not only exciting and visceral, but, but artful. Um, and I think that takes a rare skill to kind of balance that.
0: Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. And I think that, um, exactly what you're saying, that clarity, in the action, that clarity of action, uh, is hugely important, which is not a knock on like previous battle episodes of Game of Thrones. I think, you know, they all have their merits, but there's something about, uh, something that Saposhnik has said several times in an interview is that the, what's most important in a battle, as far as he's concerned, is point of view. And as Game of Thrones becomes more and more an, a show about war and less, a little bit less and less about palace intrigue, that clarity, that humanity and point of view, is so important. And what's so brilliant about Hard Home, I think. And once again, the battle of Hard Home is only like 20 minutes. Um, is that, yeah, you've got Jon Snow, who is our POV character for a lot of battle episodes, of Game of Thrones. Um, but you've got Carsey, who once again is a character that we like get so little time to care about. We care about her so quickly. And then her point of view, like her rushing to get her daughter's or I think their daughters or kids onto boats, her encountering these zombie children and then her resurrection are these like very important emotional beats of an, of a, a segment of television that is otherwise marked by like extraordinary special effects, like all this other stuff that's happening at the same time.
2: Yeah. I, I, I felt this this jolt when, when she sits up and her eyes open and I knew what was happening, obviously, but like, I was like, Oh God, that's so sad. Cause she was just like this cool person. And now this thing is sort of like inhabiting her body or however you want to look at it. And it's like, that sucks. You know, it's like you feel the weight of what, of what it means, you know, I guess in a way that you've kind of lost that through with walking dead, like, like it's like, Oh, like the double horror of seeing someone die and then seeing some, you know, horrid version of them, Come back. It's like pet cemetery kind of fear, you know, and tragedy. Um, so you're right that actually, in a way, like, it's like, we, I would have loved to have seen more Carsey, but like, she needed to die so the sort of emotional, um, weight of the episode could live, I guess.
0: Right. Because like, you know, Mastodon, the, the, the rock group Mastodon, Um, are they like heavy metal? I don't know. Don't, don't at me. I'm, I'm not cool. Um, they're like, they're, they're doing cameos as like random wildlings at Hard Home. Seeing them be reanimated is like, is like whatever, but it's not that shocking. I guess you could have killed like Tormund and have him bring him back, but like the fact that they introduced the character, had her die, had us care about this resurrection is something. And like something we haven't done on this podcast because it's been a retrospective is like speculate about the final season, but like, Though I don't know this for certain, I feel so certain in my bones that in the final season of Game of Thrones, we are going to see something similar to Hardhome, but with a lot of characters that we know even better than Carsey, right? There's no way that they don't have this thing in their pocket and not use it on like a lot of characters that we know and love uh, and have watched ever since yeah, on the show.
2: A very Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good.
0: <laughs> same um, same
2: line. Same line. Both, you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Game of Thrones endgame. It's true. It's coming. Um so yeah. Um and then do we want to talk about any of the other stuff that, that happens this this episode? You already mentioned the Ollie stuff. Uh we've got this good Theon Sansa stuff. You know, this is sort of like right before um the end of, of that particular phase of the Winterfell plot, but like, you know, Theon goes through a lot of stuff, um, in this season, uh, and, and you see sort of like the beginning of the return of Theon. Does that make sense? Um, Alfie, yeah, he- Alfie Allen's just always been one of my favorite people on the show.
2: And I think it's the first time that anyone has found out that Brandon Rick and are still alive, right?
0: You mean that Sansa finds out from him that he didn't Right. Um
2: like isn't that the first time that, yeah. that 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 yeah. knowledge has sort of like been revealed? Um which like uh, f- is significant in terms of Bran, not so for Rickon unfortunately, but
0: Well, no, I mean like the uh, it's it, it's the first that like Sansa that a Stark knows about that right. if that makes right. sense. Um yeah, like the Boltons knew and stuff like that. But yeah, it's it's a big so, moment. It's a big Sorry, moment.
2: that's what I meant. More that more that like someone who would like be happy to know that, you know. Yeah,
0: who would care? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and then, um, I don't know. The Aria stuff is just, you know, Aria and her murder, murder house internship. So that's, that's happening Bravos. Um, yeah, she's studying yeah, abroad. I mean, the, studying abroad. The, the, the other thing we want to say in this episode is this episode also has the job of, um, establishing a bunch of new rules that we, that even book readers didn't know. Like the fact that like the certainty, I think that Valerian steel can like shatter a white Walker. That's something we learned in this episode. Um, You know, that they are repellent to fire is something that we learned in this episode. You know, there's like a lot of stuff, a lot of world building rule dropping stuff that just happens in the midst of this, of this big fight as like when, that, that great and famous shot of like, the White Walker bringing his ice weapon down on John Sword Longclaw and Kit Harrington giving him this like, fantastic, what the fuck? <laughs>
3: look. Uh-huh.
0: Um, you know, that forever changes our understanding of, of this universe. I think that's, and, and once again, there's a, there's a clarity to it. Like, I mean, I wrote an explainer post after this episode of like, why did John, Snow- John Sword do that? They're, like, a lot of the casual watchers, as you mentioned, needed their hand held through like, oh, John Sword is Valerian Steel and that makes a difference and blah, 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 and all this sort of stuff. That's true, but like, for book readers to have this big piece of information come through in the midst of a fight, a snowy, windswept fight, um, is, you know, it's an incredible, incredible piece of cinema. So, yeah and i gotta say you know of of,
2: no. sorry, <laughs> of steel um uh you know i i, I mean, for me the a, a little of the white walkers goes a long way like i don't <laughs> love seeing so much of them frankly it's like a horror movie when they finally show the monster and you're like oh, okay you know um and i know that that's just a, a inevitability of the show and probably would have been an inevitability of the books that these people these creatures or whatever they are were like Gonna just sort of have to be more present, you know? Um, and I think the show manages that okay. I, I, I don't know. It's weird to me that the Knights King, like, has a sense of, like, wit about him, you know? <laughs> like, like, his little bitchy, like, mm-hmm, you know? Like, I, I, I don't know. I think, and maybe that's okay, cause I guess we're gonna find out what he is, I
0: guess. Maybe. At some point.
2: But, like, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I think for me, it's just like, I appreciate that scene and I appreciate what they're doing, but I don't think I needed to have the other white Walker be like a master swordsman, you know, like I think it could just be like brute force and like sort of an unrelenting thing rather than this kind of, I don't know.
0: It's oh, interesting. I I kind of like that. They have like an intelligence, a culture, a sort of thing. Like I don't need to have like a whole bottle episode with the white walkers or anything like that. And I like that for a long time, they would only show up like once a season um, and that's a little less true. Like, I, I thought a little too much White Walker for my taste in season seven, right? Uh-huh. And I anticipate. Too much White Walker for my taste in season eight. But as you say, that's the nature of the story, this invasion story. But what's interesting for book readers, especially is that, like, the Night King isn't even a character <laughs> in the books, right? Like, we right. have not that, met that character. There's, like, a fabled old story that's the Night's King or something like that. But the Night King, um, who we had seen before this episode, but this is really, like, his real introduction to the story. That, like, as you mentioned, that sassy sort of shrug thing mm-hmm. that he, that he gives Jon Snow. To the point where, like, now, if you look at the marketing for, I think, both last season and this, like, The Night King is, like, one of the main marketing iconic, you know, piece of iconography of the show. And it, once again, just shows the the difference between George R. R. Martin's story in the books and what we're seeing on the screen in terms of, like, you know, this is this is an important part of the story that HBO is telling thus far. It's not been an important part of what George R. R. Martin's telling, but anyway. Um, all right. So is there anything else you want to say about hard home?
2: Just RIP Carsey. I guess that's it.
0: Yeah. Bummer. Um, So, yes. So that is our discussion of Hard Home. Stay tuned. We've got a great interview with the director photographer, Fabian Wagner, who worked with Miguel Sapochnik on like all of his episodes. So he talks about some of the other episodes that he did with Miguel, talks about some of the like really incredible shots uh, in this episode specifically. Uh, And after that interview, we will let you know what episode we will be discussing next. The Run for revoke is where
2: you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Lebowitz, Um, who should be the mayor of New York.
0: We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> 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 Very nice. Nikki? Yes? It's been really great Cheer being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us?
2: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
0: We can. We can.
2: All right, here we are.
0: <laughs>
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit appleco calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: Hi,
0: Dr. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for joining us. Fabian Wagner, a great cinematographer. You've worked on several seasons of Game of Thrones with two different directors, but most famously, obviously collaborated with Miguel Sapochnik on some of the biggest episodes of the series, including Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, The Winds of Winter, and you guys are doing two episodes in the final season. I'm curious if you think that there is a major distinction at this point in the series between different directorial styles on the show? In other words, how much does it matter visually, episode to episode, who
3: directed it and who lensed it? That's a big question. (laughs) I I think, I mean, I don't think that the, the look itself has evolved that much. I think the look was really set on season two it's become more natural and sort of unified personally for myself.
0: You and Miguel have worked on so many episodes together at this point. Do you have a kind of shorthand when it comes to figuring out how you're going to visually present an episode?
3: Yeah, I mean, Miguel and I, we, when we first met, we got sort of thrown into the deep end by doing um, the episode called Hard Home on in season five, which was a pretty big in, you know episode in terms of logistics and set build and and action, nothing like uh, battle of the bastards in season six or or now um season eight uh but it was sort of a good initiation for us. We hadn't worked together before uh, you know we didn't know each other, so it was a great episode to do and from that very first moment on, funny enough, we never really talked about the way it should look. We always had a very similar understanding of what it should look like. I think one of the reasons why we work so well together is because we we both get the script and we both read the scripts individually and then we come together and, and he would go, you know, I, I, on this scene I thought we should do this. And I was like, this is exactly what I was thinking. Or maybe it's the other way around. And, you know, so... Are there any
0: hard and fast rules of shooting Game of Thrones in terms of camera angles, say, Kit Harrington always has to be shot a certain way or this kind of shot is a villainous shot and this kind of shot is a hero shot or anything like that?
3: Not as such. I mean, there is, you know, Game of Thrones is a very classically classic looking show. I mean, it's very classic cinematography and lighting. Um, something like a Dutch angle, for example. Which is, you know, when the camera is tilted to one side, for example, that's not a very Game of Thrones angle. Um, you know, works great for something like Breaking Bad or something like this, but it wouldn't. It's not something that you would do for for Game of Thrones. So it's, I think it's something, you know, it's stuff like that. It's very sort of in your face. I think what we've done, and that's purely down to the episodes that we've been been doing, you know, we've been introducing a few more things that hadn't been seen in Game of Thrones that much beforehand, like maybe some slow motion, maybe, you know, changes of shutters, shutter angles and, and stuff like that. Is there
0: a time, you can recall, where you and your director um, decided to try something slightly experimental, only to have the showrunner say, like, no, that's not how we do it on Game of Thrones?
3: Well, I mean, there's a funny story on season five, maybe on the first season, when we were we I can't quite remember the scene that it was, but we were shooting a scene. I remember it was in um Tomming's chamber. It was in in King's Landing and, and it was a it was a quite a conspiratorial scene and you know, I had read the scene and Meg had read the scene and we talked about it and we both we both kind of had the feeling that we should shoot the scene on longer lenses, be further away, maybe shoot through some foreground. Um which is not the kind of Game of Thrones style. Game of Thrones is very you know, classic um, over shoulder close ups or close ups, and and we were, you know, we both had that feeling. Oh, let's shoot this on on really long lenses, and shoot through some foreground. And I just remember when the rushes came in, and David and Dan were like, "Guys, this is not, this is not the way we're shooting stuff." And to be fair, and uh, you know, credit to them, they were right. We sh- we shot the scene in the Game of Thrones start and actually did work. But yeah, so that's one of the, that's the, that's the one example that I have, personally, that we really messed that one up.
0: I'm always curious whether the English major inside of me at all times uh, is ever reading too much into some of the visual cues of an episode. So, for example, in this episode, Hard Home, we've got this shot of Sansa talking to Theon, and she's got the cold winter light coming out, uh, lighting one side of her face, and then the the warm firelight light lighting the other side of her face. And so you've got a little fire and ice going on on Sansa right there. Is that an intentional sort of dichotomy that you're trying to put in there or is it just the limitations of we have to light the scene and all we have to work with is natural daylight and firelight so you get what you get?
3: You know, I can't quite remember the scene that you're talking about, but, you know, if I was to say that, yes, that was completely intentional and I wanted her to have, you know, have a fiery uh, persona at that point and so replacing it that way, then... That might have been, but it also might have just been pure luck by saying, oh, this looks nice, why don't we do this? So I have to be totally honest here. You know, we we do think about it a lot, but you know, a lot of it is also. You know, sort of luck on the day that you get. You know, you turn up and.
0: Given how much this show relies on natural light to light certain scenes—daylight, moonlight, what have you—is um, it harder to do that when everything is becoming increasingly wintry and that you no longer have the blaring sunlight to to light things up? You've got to deal with things filtered through through snow.
3: You know, I like I like. The contrast between the the blue sort of the cold daylight, for example, or the cold moonlight, and then the the warm firelight—that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about um, Game of Thrones. I think that's sort of the colder, wintry daylight issues, and so much of a thing. I think it's the you know we we did episode three in uh, season eight, and that was entirely set at night time, and that that kind of um, presented us with some uh, you know big challenges
0: and as for like the major show-stopping aspect of the episode hard home is of course this battle what was the biggest challenge um, for you putting together this fight between the living and the dead uh, Jon Snow and the Night King
3: mm-hmm. yeah there was a lot of tough things on hard home surely the hardest thing for us was that we were shooting uh, very late I believe in the year so we only had it was a daytime sequence but we only had something like seven hours of daylight so you know normally we would do a 10-hour day so we had lost three two or three hours um, from the get-go so schedule wise we had to be very very well prepared to be able to get everything that we wanted to get Um, so we would turn up very early in the morning we would uh, rehearse with work lights while it's still dark and then we would you know, as soon as we could, we would start shooting and we would start shooting until it was no longer possible, basically. And then, you know, tricky things like, you know, shooting the giant, for example, and shooting our people interacting with the giant. How do we, when when the wall comes down, he's running towards the sea and he's uh, throwing the big uh, piece of wood around, killing lots of um, White as they run towards him, you know that's something. How you know how? That, it, a lot of those things are very time-consuming and very tricky, and you have to be very well thought through.
0: You got to do a, like one-one's biggest star moments, both in *Hard Home* and *Battle of the Bastards*. What do you think is the key to really conveying? Size uh, in when you're working with a special effect like this one?
3: Well, I think it's just, it purely comes down to a good working relationship with the visual effects department. And, you know, we have a great relationship, and the, the visual effects guys are they're a great team in Game of Thrones. And we were working together for a director, being able to understand how it works and then give the actors something to act with that they can, you know, do their do their thing, do their part uh, well by reacting to something that isn't there.
0: There's this one shot I really love of the giant where you are shooting down, looking down into the longhouse um, on, on the beach there, and 1-1 is looking up and out, and it sort of it really opens up the that setting which might feel like a little bit more claustrophobic otherwise is that the intention of a shot like that to open up a space like that to give us a sense of scope and scale what are we looking for there
3: yeah i think that was the intention of uh, he's looking up and we hear the sounds coming through the atmosphere and obviously that was the only open bit in the so that was the yeah so if you, he hears the sounds, he looks up and we we come to this this shot from above um that was one of the things that we sort of used to make our schedule work was we built the actual, the actual set was built on the location where we shot Home. So as soon as it got dark each evening, but we still had a couple of hours to shoot, we would move into that set right next door and continue shooting in there. So we would... maximize our
0: day. Like conversations around the fire or something like that. Yes, exactly. Um, And and so when you're putting, when you are putting together a location like that in the first place, those shots are lit uh, not just by the firelight but once again by these shafts of natural light coming in through the ceiling. How much uh, collaboration work do you do with like say Deb Riley who's the head of production design to make sure like, hey Deb, can you not get a few more beams in the ceiling of this longhouse? We need a little bit more light to make sure that people can see what's actually going on inside here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's for us. That, that's for, I think, any DP that's the main um, focus in prep is would be to speak to all the departments, especially the art department about the things they're building or the locations department about the locations they're finding. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Deb and I started in the same year, season four, and, and we've always gotten on very well and she's got a great team of of people working with her. And so, yes, I mean, as soon as they would... Uh, come up with an, as soon as Debs would come up with an idea for a certain set we would she would send it to me she would send it to Miguel we would sit down we would discuss what you know uh, how you know something would could help our idea of shooting the scene you know if I thought it was useful to have another window there or maybe to have a window smaller or maybe to have something else there maybe there's no window because that's, you know, something that Miguel and I have thought about, then we would discuss all of that and they would be, you know, usually very accommodating and and, and helpful with, um, you know, whatever we require.
0: Okay, so I have my favorite shot of Home, which I will definitely tell you about in a second, but I'm curious if you have a favorite shot of the episode.
3: Well, I think my favorite, I mean, visually, I mean, story-wise my favorite shot would be the, the end of the Night King raising his hands. Just as a fan of Game of Thrones, I thought that was a really cool moment. And uh, I mean, probably one of my favorite shots would be the wall coming down with all the whites climbing over. Because, but not because it's you know there's anything. Actually, I'll tell you what, my favorite shot would be the one. The, I can't remember the character, the character's name. It's. It's the guy. He approaches when, when we first hear them. The whites approach. He he slowly appro- He says, "Close the gate," and then he slowly walks up to the gate. And the camera sort of behind him, pushing in with him, and we see his full body. And he's holding his axe, and he's pushing in towards the gate.
0: Oh, the fen.
3: Yeah, exactly. The same. I think sort of that kind of thing. I really love that kind of shot because it just sets up an atmosphere so nicely. So
0: my favorite shot is not like any major special effect. I mean, there's some great, you know, iconic shots in this episode. The White Walker. Strolling through the fire and cooling it as he walks or, or Long Claw clashing with the ice weapon for the first time and John sort of mm-hmm. with the fuck face and all of that. But for me, um, the shot that I love is you shot the top of the, of the wall there, the fence, and you can just see the wooden sort of pokey wooden tops of the fence rattling, um, as, as the army of the dead tries to get in. And there's no major special effect there. I'm sure there's some, but there's no major special effect there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so atmospheric uh and it's amazing to me that there's room for something like that
3: yeah i love that stuff you know we, we try to do as much as we can in camera and for real um so yeah a lot of those shots are yeah it's always nice when you do a shot like this and it really uh trans uh, conveys the story and the and the and the feeling of the whole episode. That's
0: nice. And before you and Miguel started your collaboration on the show, um, it was already becoming somewhat famous for its battle episodes. Blackwater is a huge episode. Watch on the Wall was a huge episode. But from Hardhome onwards, this idea of the Game of Thrones battle episodes, I think becomes even more a part of the identity of the show. What's going to be the big battle this year? This battle is going to be bigger than ever. Were you surprised by the reaction to that initial episode to Hardhome? And then how much the battle reputation has sort of become the Game of Thrones reputation in the later seasons.
3: Well, I mean, I was definitely surprised with the success of them. Um, you know, for me, it's always, you know, I always knew that Game of Thrones was a popular show, but, you know, it kind of really became, you know, incredibly popular sort of after season four, season five. You know, for us, for Miguel and me, especially, when we, you know, we we knew that heart had gone down very well, now and then we knew that we would come back for Battle of the bastards, you know for us, the pressure really was on because we you know you do something good and then you're really under the scrutiny of the next one that you do so 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 for us, that was really just that uh, it, but it's more for us I mean we just want you know do as good as a job as possible and and have fun while we're doing it and
0: so you and Miguel took season seven off working on the show, though you did say that you were, you did a little bit of pickup on the show, um, but you didn't have a main episode that you were DPing on. What was it like watching the show and not working on it in season seven?
3: Uh, it, it was... It was kind of great and it was kind of sad because, um, you know, I got asked to come back and I couldn't come back because I was doing another job at the time and... Uh, it was at the time it felt like I was quite sad that I wasn't able to be there to shoot something but then I did actually go back for three weeks and I just uh, I did some pickups for a lot of the other episodes at the end so it was nice to see everyone and it was nice to be even though I hadn't shot any episodes it was nice to still be a part of it Um, but looking back on it for me it was it, it was kind of you know sometimes it's good to have a break um creatively as well, do something different. And then when you come back to to a show like this, you sort of come back with fresher ideas maybe in fresher eyes. So
0: Okay, you come back to season eight and you're directing two episodes. Episode three, the big long battle episode, and then episode five, the penultimate episode. We've already talked a little bit about the challenges of, of shooting at night, but like what can you tell us about this, you know, epic long, never-ending nighttime shoot experience of making episode three.
3: Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, uh, I I have never experienced anything like it before. I mean, the great thing with Game of Thrones is that you always know that they're going to present a challenge and you always know that they're going big and they're, you know, they're trying to, to be bigger and better than what they did before, and so I always knew that it was going to be big. But then when I read it, I never knew that it was going to be that big. So we, I mean, we—the good thing was that Miguel and I obviously are friends, and we've done these bigger, these bigger episodes together before. So we, we had a good way of approaching it and uh, figuring out how to do it. Um, but it was still—I mean, you know—I don't think any of us had ever done anything like it, and it was. You know the challenge of shooting we were doing fifty five consecutive nights um, shooting in Northern Ireland from February till April. I mean that's you know you get every sort of weather it was all exterior, so you get every every kind of weather from snow to wind to rain to minus whatever degrees um, so it's it's physically exhausting and it's um you know trying to 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 find an interesting look that also evolves over the course of the episode because it' all shot in one night um you know over you know over that many night shooting days and in such a varied weather with so many cast with so many with so many stunts action visual effects i mean it was just you know every single. You know, every single thing that you can have on set that will slow you down or that will, you know, um, make it difficult for you. I mean, you know, animals, kids, or, you know, they say animals and kids are difficult to shoot. Um, you know, we had everything, uh, you know, times a 100. I mean, it was just... and It's an incredibly huge episode. And so... You know, it was just a challenge overall, and visually for me, it was you know, even though it was you know really interesting to to do something like this, um, you know, it, it was a tough, it was a huge setup. It was, you know, I did, like like again for me, I didn't want to to come up with a setup that would just be okay for everything. I wanted to evolve the the lighting. Uh, you know, and the the the, the storytelling of the lighting to evolve with the storytelling of the episode and and the characters.
0: Something that I think I've read Miguel say uh, specifically about Hard Elm and Battle of the Bastards is that something that makes a big war episode, especially a special effects heavy war episode, successful is drilling down on point of view, making sure you've you've got your point of view coherent throughout the episode. And I think it's safe to say that for both Hardhome and Battle of the Bastards, it's primarily Jon's point of view, though so you have characters like Carsey in Hardhome or maybe Sansa in Battle of the Bastards, you know, some some variance there, but primarily Jon. How do you keep that coherence when you know as as we've been told in season 8 there's just everyone's in there. Like, how do you how do you make sure that point of view carries the audience through?
3: I mean, that's something that Miguel and I speak about all the time, and that's in the pre- in preparation of Heart Home and Battle of the Bastards and season eight as well. We always <clears throat> spend a lot of time talking about whose stories is who do we really care about. I mean, we all, you know, as much funny as it is to watch some action sequence, uh, you can only watch. Uh, You know, action for so long before it becomes repetitive or boring. So, and we don't care about the action if it doesn't involve any of our, uh, the people and characters that we love. So we always talk about, you know, to make this more compelling or to make this more interesting, we need to, we need to feel for, like I said, in, in John, in, in Battle of the Bastards, it became very much about John. And a lot of the style, you know, it, it also came from not only because we wanted to, you know, to, to do something that's engaging for the audience. It was also, how how can we shoot this um, without completely going overboard with our visual effects budget or with our, you know, we sometimes we have to sort of phone it in and say, okay, we can't do another big, uh, huge scene with a massive wide shot because, you know, because we probably don't have the time or the resources actually to do that. So sometimes it also gets, you know, you kind of get pushed into it by, into something like that, where you you make it smaller because you make it about this one character and things happen in the background or around that character. And in the end, that becomes much more interesting anyway. So it's, it's I think it's a combination of those two things. And obviously season eight is very much about all the characters. Everyone is there. So we we were just trying to, to create the story for each character that we can follow and that the audience can engage with so that when something happens, if something happens, um, it will have much more of an emotional impact. Like, for example, the best example would be the shot in Battle of the Bastards behind Jon Snow and all the horses are coming towards him. You know, that sort of became an iconic shot, but that was a very simple, you know, old camera technique. It's all in camera. There's no visual effects in it. It's It's just a very simple shot. And that, you know, that shot became very powerful, even though it's a very, I mean, if you just had that shot by itself, it would be super boring. But the shot becomes so strong because of Jon Snow and the 60 horses, which we had on set, and the fact that people think, oh, God, he's going to die.
0: Working on Game of Thrones has been, you know, as as you said, you never worked on something of this scope before you started uh, many years ago. It's been pretty instrumental to your, you know, to your career. Hmm. What was it like shooting your final your final shot for Game of Thrones?
3: Yeah, it was, It was, you know, it was, I can't actually put it in words. I've, I've made, I mean, first of all, the fact that they've asked me to come in season four and then the fact that they've asked me to come back every season to shoot more stuff, you know, means so much to me. It's definitely changed my career, that show. It's, um, I've met some amazing people uh, just to be able to work with or alongside all these other DPs like Jonathan Freeman, you know, who, Rob McLaughlin, David Franco, and Ed Helmick, you know, these guys are just, you know, incredible DPs. And so to work alongside them and to learn from them and with them, it was just an incredible experience. So the last four years have been amazing for me. And to know that, you know, you go back on that show, which everyone loves so much, Um, was great in season 8, you know, my wife or she actually we got married during season 8 you know, she was working the show as well, Uh, so that became, uh. you know that was obviously the biggest part for me um, which was great, and we just, you know, so and we had a lovely time in Belfast together Uh, so there were so many personal things and professional things that came together in season 8, I'm kind of glad it's finished, (laughs) because you know, it's nice to go and do something else <laughs> and, um, you know, sort of challenge yourself with something else. But I, I mean, I, I already know, I'm, I mean, I'm already missing it now because normally I would be, this would sort of be the time of the year when I get sort of the first email saying, okay, you're going to get the outlines of the scripts in a couple of weeks and, you know, maybe come over in April, May to do some reckeys. And so I already miss, that because i know that's not going to happen did you did you
0: meet your wife while working on game of thrones
3: no i met her on a different job but we then both what does she she do she's a artist.
0: how fun how fun i know that when the actors finished shooting on season eight um they were presented with a a storyboard from you know one of their big scenes as sort of a thank you for your time
3: so we were shooting episode five and we were shooting on our Big Landing set, and um, yeah, Dan Dan Weiss uh, gave a lovely speech, which um, made it kind of made me speechless. I didn't know what to say. And they and they presented me with one of those um, lovely framed storyboards. It was a storyboard from um, some of the famous shots in, in Battle of the Bastards, which was very very sweet and very overwhelming. And it's actually it's hanging in hanging in our uh, living room. And then. Um
0: you know, without, without spoiling anything, obviously, for the final season, what are you, if you can speak vaguely to what you're most excited for people to see in the work you did in the final season? You know,
3: I just hope that I just, you know, <laughs> with a lot of success, for sure, this also comes a lot of, you know, pressure. And I just really hope that I really think, and I hope that, You know, the fans will love it. And uh, we've all, uh, you know, the whole crew has put so much effort um, in all the seasons, but especially this last season. um, So much effort and so much love and so many hours and nights and, and everything. And so I just hope it, you know, I hope they love it. You know? Is
0: there is there a shot from Game of Thrones that you didn't shoot that you think is is one of your favorites or iconic uh,
3: in the series? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a scene if I could shoot any scene, but then again, I wouldn't shoot it because he's done it so perfectly, and he could, I couldn't make it any better. But is it, the red wedding that's kind of that's that scene mm-hmm. is is great and I just love that scene and the way Rob shot that it's just so beautiful and um, that's sort of, I've always watched that scene thinking wow, that's a, uh, I would have loved to have shot that scene.
0: <laughs> what, a, what about the way that what did Rob do in that scene that you feel like really makes it so resonant from a DP point of view?
3: Well, I mean what he's done so cleverly was that during the scene when after the speech and everybody leaves and lock the door, they've taken out all the candles. And so it becomes this very beautiful, bright lit scene um, with lots of candles everywhere. And as they leave, they take all the candles out and it becomes this very dark and sinister thing. And it's just those little ideas, you know, that someone has like, like that, which just makes something suddenly so interesting, even if it's just subconsciously, you know, um, and And so, I thought that was just an amazing little detail in that in that scene, and obviously because it's you know they're killing. Of our favorite
0: characters, so you, something that people I think forget when they think about Hard Home is the fact that the battle itself is only what the last 20 minutes of the episode, mm. if, if even that, right? Yeah, um, and, and you have so little time to establish our emotional investment in characters like the Fen that you mentioned, one, one, the giant, and then also Carsey. Carsey, yeah. Um. Carsey is so integral to this episode because. Her death, her resurrection, and we have just minutes to like meet her and care about her. So, you know, in addition to that actress's great performance and she's fabulous and has been fabulous in everything she's ever done, how do you, what are some techniques of shooting a character like that to get the audience really on her side as quickly as possible?
3: Well, I mean, she's a great example for, you know, setting up a character and, and implanting that seed in the, in the audience's head. So we always, you know, Megan and I make a list of the things that we really, really have to get. We break the script down from top to bottom and we really break it down in, in what we can achieve, what we can't achieve. And and the things that are essential for a certain character or the story. And so we knew, you know, for, to make that beat of hers work, which we really wanted to do and which the guys really wanted, um, we had to have the moment of Carsey, um getting her kids to safety, and there's a scene down by the boat, so she's getting the kids in the boat, and she's saying goodbye to them, and and you know she she punches the other guy who comes along because he wants to get in, and but and 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 just that very brief second of of us seeing that she's okay, she's a mom, she cares about these kids. Uh, and she's gaining safety and then she's going back to fight. And then when she's getting killed by the kid, by, by the white kids, I mean, you know, just subconsciously that I think that trigger of as soon as you see her, you relate that to the scene with her and the kids, which was only like, you know, maybe a 10 second scene, 15 second scene, but it was enough to, to feel that for the character, which makes her death ever more so, um, you know, sad and,
0: and and yeah, and it's exactly that point of view that we were discussing earlier, where the the visual effects of that of that sequence are amazing. Everything with the whites and the White Walkers visually incredible, hmm. but I don't think it lands if you don't have John or Ed or Tormund or Carsey or all of them and their emotions around.
3: It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you wouldn't. You would just get bored after a few but because because we care so much about these characters, it's that's what Game of Thrones is so good at.
0: <laughs> All right, so many thanks to Fabian Wagner. I think I lied early in this episode when I said this is the only Season 5 episode we're doing. We're Obviously, we're doing Season 5, Episode 10, uh, which has got, you know, that, that very famous uh, stroll that Cersei takes through town. Uh, so Season 5, Episode 10, Mother's Mercy, is the next episode we are doing... Richard, until then, where can people find you?
2: Well, vf.com uh, and at Rylaws and, I don't know, I'll probably just be like, down by the docks looking for your oyster cart I guess
0: <laughs> cool, where cool. You, Is um, that where you're gonna be? Well, I mean I should mention, because I forgot too that this episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez you'll find me putting together a all-bone ensemble, a sort of rattle-shirt look Mm -hmm. for the final season watch. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got my skull helmet ready. I I need to get that little shirt going. Um, Otherwise, you'll also find me on VF.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. We will see you next time for Season 5, Episode 10, Mother's Mercy.
1: We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party, or having family over, or even just cooking for yourself, when all of a sudden, it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen.
0: I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point.
1: I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space. A toddler who only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy, without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.